Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, we have a huge section to cover today. Um, we're going to look at chapter 29 and 30 of 1 Samuel. Uh, but, but don't worry. Uh, some of it we're going to go through very quickly. And some of it we're going to go through um, slowly. So we'll have time to, for the really good bits. But before we do that, if you, if you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Samuel. We'll start at chapter 29, verse 1, and we'll end at chapter 30, verse 30. Before we do that, though, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your kindness and goodness to us in providing it. We thank you, Lord, for the treasure trove that it is of, um, that would weary us as we are fighting the good fight of the faith that feeds us, Lord, on this journey through life, Lord, in which we are seeking and pursuing you with all our strength. We thank you for the ministry of David, for um, the ministry of the prophets who recorded your word. And we pray that you would open it to our hearts and minds now, that we would be um, convicted and comforted in exactly the way each of us need. We thank you and we praise you and amen. Well, I'm actually going to begin with the end, and that is David goes out to fight and he wins. And what he does is the, the second half of chapter 30 is all about the swag that he brings back. He goes out and destroys his enemy and takes a great deal of treasure, a great deal of swag, and comes home and distributes it amongst a whole bunch of people. That, that's ultimately, there you go, that's the story. But in this treasure trove, what you have are jewels and gems and, and, and massive amounts of wealth in gospel foreshadowing. So what, what I would actually like to do is what we're going to is, is open the bag and we're going to take out um, a number, as many jewels as I could find <laughs> and look at them and consider them and consider our, the, the treasury, consider the wealth of knowledge in this, these two chapters because this chapter preaches the gospel in at least 10 different ways. And, and what we need to do is, is not only understand it in this story, but this, the, these two chapters help us understand how to find this treasure elsewhere in Scripture. Now, chapter 30 records David's victory over the Amalekites, a group of people we've heard about before. It's the group that Saul was supposed to destroy, uh, and he did not. Now, the other thing that you have in this story is a bunch of comparisons between Saul and David. All the things Saul failed to do, David succeeds in doing. Now, its structure of, uh, the structure of chapter 30 emphasizes David's uh, military prowess, but even more so, it, it, it emphasizes the treasure he brings back. It's all about the swag. David won the battle. He plundered his enemies. He gives gifts to men. And this, he foreshadows Jesus. This is the first jewel we're going to look at. This is the gospel. Jesus won a victory at the cross, plundered the strong man's house, and distributed gifts to men. Mark 3, 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first, first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Ephesians 4, 7, 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. This is the gospel. Jesus comes, binds the strong man, defeats him, plunders his house, and distributes the gifts, distributes the swag to his people. That is what the gospel is. Everything that you have is given to you from the Lord God because he took it by force. Uh, we were talking about it in our class this morning. Um, Jesus is the king of peace, and he is the king of peace because he's won. He, he has brought peace. The, the, the war is, at this point, pointless to fight uh, on the side of the enemy because Jesus already won. 
He's already given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the word of God. He's given us one another. He is is even now, from the river to the ends of the earth, declaring his victory, right? And that's what a gospel message is. When we go to a new place, we are not, you know, making an offer. (laughs) We are not appealing to people. We are declaring the victory that already occurred. And so as we go about retaking the land here in the Pacific Northwest, it it, it is important to remember we don't go hat in hand begging people to join us. We go as as heralds of of a great victory. We go as people who declared he already won. (laughs) We're not asking people to join something. We're telling them something that already happened. The anointed of the Lord saves the enslaved, the suffering Gentile, and enriches his people. This is gospel. And in this story, that's exactly what we're going to see David do. He is going to save the enslaved, the suffering Gentile, and enrich his people. Furthermore, okay, if you get into the story, threatened by the Philistines, Saul went to the Lord, but Yahweh did not re, uh, respond to him. Remember last week. Saul seeks the Lord. He does not hear anything, so he goes to a necromancer, a ghost wife, so that he can get a word as to what he's supposed to do, and the whole thing ends in tragedy. But here, threatened by the Amalekites, David goes to the Lord, and the Lord speaks to him. David isn't just a warrior. He's a mediator. He is someone, right? All all of his people are going to want to stone him to death for the circumstances they're in. Welcome to Christian leadership. They don't like the decisions he's made. They want to stone him to death. They want to bury him in the sand. And what he does is he rallies and leads the people in a great victory. He is not just a warrior, he is a mediator. He is, he is there to tell people what God has said, the true king of Israel, unlike Saul, who, can't, who, who God refuses to pick up the phone. Now, there are other typological things going on here. This is a, it is a treasure trove. And now, of all things, I'm going to get into um, numerology. Who, who likes a little numerology from time to time? <laughs> Let's do this thing, right? Now, some people may accuse me of being typologically on the skinny branches here, but I assure you I am not. If you sit down with paper and pen and work out chapters 28, 29, and 30, it, it, they're not in chronological order. As we saw, like they, they mentioned David in the, in the Philistines at the start of 28, and then there's this story, and then they mention it again later, and oh yeah, hey, Samuel died back in 25, and the whole thing is kind of like shaken up together in, a, in an interesting way. But if you laid out the events chronologically, what you would find out is something quite interesting. It takes place over a six-day period. Chapters 28, 29, and 30, 31 included, all take place in a six-day period. In the middle of this week, which David wins a great victory and Saul suffers a crushing defeat, David combats the Amalekites successfully and Saul is falling on his sword on Mount Geboa. So the day, <laughs> the day that David is winning is the day Saul is losing. Okay? When, you, when you lay out this week, you actually start to see these interesting connections. Now, the fact that it is laid out over a week is very significant. Whenever the events that are being uh, told us from the scriptures takes place over a week, what they want us to think about is the first week. That is the point of the biblical authors. When something takes place over six days or seven days, what they want us to think of is a creation week. Either they want us to think back to the original creation week, or they want us to think of the new creation week. And, and Jesus' death... Uh, a resurrection and, and all of those things that occurred when he, on, on, when he won his great victory, all is about the new creation week. That's what we call the new creation week. 
Now, here's what's going on in this story. This is the final week of Saul's life, but the beginning of David's life. This is the end of Saul's week and the beginning of David's week. The death of the old Adam was announced on the sixth day, and a new Adam was on his way to the throne on the seventh day. The new Adam, Christ, would bring Sabbath rest to the land. Now, some transitions from death to life occur on both the first and the eighth day. I want to talk about the eighth day because it's something that they mention in the Old Testament. We don't really think about it. Why the eighth day? Why would you wait a week and then a, 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 an, an extra day in order to circumcise a young man who comes into Israel? Circumcision was administered on the eighth day of an infant boy's life, marking his transition from the world to the people of Israel. Several other rites of cleansing involved an eighth-day washing, according to Leviticus 15.14 and and 15.29. In fulfillment of this, Jesus rose on the day after the Sabbath, the first day, or what theologians call the eighth day, the beginning of a brand-new week, the beginning of a brand-new epoch, the beginning of a brand-new age. Now, there are two things going on with these numbers. Have you ever thought, why three days? Why was he in the ground three days? Well, because it was three days. He died, and three days later was the Sabbath, and that's when he had to come on. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, but why not five? Why not six? Why not 18? Why three? The third day, now if you think about a common week, a common week is six days, right? You have the seventh day, which is holy, and you have six regular days. So Jesus came back half, right, in the middle of the week, (laughs) Because there's different ways of measuring time. If you talk about a new week, you talk about Monday to Sunday. That's a week. But you can also talk about Wednesday to Tuesday is also a week, isn't it? So there's different ways of referring to weeks. So Jesus goes and comes back three days in, halfway through the week, because it's a theological point. The resurrection, as they understood it in the Old Testament, was supposed to occur at the end of human history. Jesus, halfway through human history, invades the center of the story with the end of the story. He brings the resurrection, his resurrection, into the middle of the story, the middle of the week, on the third day. That's what it signifies, because he's now laying claim to human history. He's saying, this is mine now. The resurrection isn't just something that's going to happen at the end. It's going to happen for everyone else at the end. But I'm bringing it into the here and now to change the, the, the whole nature of the game. So he is resurrected on the eighth day, a new day. He is resurrected, though, in the middle of history, in the middle of a week. And, and that's why, if you look in this story, the reason I'm bringing all this up is that it keeps referring to the third day David did this, and the first day that David did this, and the eighth day David did this, all throughout the story. And what they're trying to point to is the week of Jesus' life in which he invaded human history and, and won it over to himself. Now, I'm just getting warmed up. What you also have are shadows of the Exodus story. Like the spoils of Egypt, the spoils of Amalek and Philistia become the inheritance of the cities of Judah. When they left Egypt, they took all the swag. In fact, the Egyptians came and gave all the swag to the Israelites before they left, and that's all the stuff that they later used to build a tabernacle. So just as Israel had used the pagan plunder to build God's tabernacle, David uses it to build up God's house and and, and create a base of operations in which he is now going to go fight a civil war. He's building the house of God with the swag they took from the Gentiles, just like they did in the Exodus story. Now these are just some of the typological elements that are going on, but these are not, in fact, the deepest, most interesting ones. 
But before we get to the rest of chapter 30, we have to deal with a funny story. Actually, I think it is one of the funnier stories in the Bible in 1 Samuel 29. So if you turn there with me now, I'm going to read selections. As a minister, I have the right, right? The whole counsel of God will be preached, don't worry. But I'm only going to read from parts of this chapter. This is what it says in chapter 29 of 1 Samuel. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that was in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were passing on by numbers and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, what what are those Hebrews doing here? Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with with me now for days and years? And since he deserted me, I have found no fault in him to this day, right? All the rest of the Philistines are like, wait, what is that dude doing here? Don't you know who we're going to go fight right now? And Agus is like, ah, don't worry about him. He's been loyally serving me for a long time now. And, and <laughs> the Philistines, it says in verse 4, are angry, and they ought to be, because so far David's plan has worked out perfectly. Achish is so taken in by what David is doing, he's going to take David to battle with him, forgetting that David won his wife by uh, uh, attaining for himself Philistine <laughs> foreskins. He doesn't mind using Philistine body part in order to win prizes back in Israel. Right? Everyone seems to have forgotten. Well, Agish seems to have forgotten this. But everybody else has not forgotten this. And they're very angry about it. And they respond. I'll even give you the verse number. At the end of verse 4. It says, send the man back, and, and he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to the battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David by whom they sing to one another and dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And the ten thousands were Philistines, I might add. Okay, in verse 6 it says, Achish. Achish is taken in all the way. Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. From the day you came to me to this day. Then in verse 8 it says, And David said to Achish, But what have I done? (laughs) All kinds of things, David. What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Who is he talking to? He never calls Achish the lord, my king. That's the phrase again and again and again and again he uses of Saul. So even now, he's tricking him. Right? How else is he going to show Saul how good he is in battle unless you take me down there and I can murder you in front of him? <laughs> Verse 10, now then, rise early in the morning, Achish says, with the servants of, the, of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So for a year and four months, I think it is, David's been planning this, this idea where, hey, I'm going to win you over to my side thinking I'm one of you, all the while I'm killing your allies, and then what you're going to do is take me to battle with you when I can really show the Lord my king something. And Achish is completely taken in by it. And I have to give credit to the rest of the Philistines because there they are, right? All the armies are marching by, and the Philistines think they're going to go win a great battle because Saul is on the ropes. And then, oh my goodness gracious, you brought the killer of 10,000s with you. 
the guy who paid his bride price with our foreskins. What is wrong with you, Akish? And Akish is like, no, he's an honest and upright man. Well, he is an honest and upright man, but he, but he is completely deceived Akish. Now, at this point, his, his great strategy, think of how long David has been planning this. Do you think he's disappointed? Do you think he is wondering to himself, what's up with this, God? I had this plan. All I want to do is glorify you. All I want to do is win for you. All I want to do is go out and fight for you. All I want to do is lift up Israel and defend Israel. And I got sent home. He gets left behind. If I were him, I would be extraordinarily upset. Right? And aren't we always when our, our plans are thwarted? I mean, all I'm trying to do is provide for my family over here. All I'm trying to do is raise my kid in the fear and admonition of the Lord. All I'm trying to do is go out there and win for you, God. And what you're doing is making a roadblock to my plan. And God says, no, 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 listen. Whatever your plan may be, I'm providentially in charge. Go home. And you think, what can I possibly do good there? What, what good can I do if I go back and I'm left behind? Being left behind is not the plan. Going with you is the plan. And God interrupts him and says, no, no, no. You're being left behind. Then what we find out almost immediately as to why exactly it is that God's plan is better than David's. Because it is. <laughs> but we find out immediately. In chapter 30, verse 1, 1 through 5, it says this. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Now, David arrives at Ziklag on the third day to find that the city is burned and the women and children are missing. Attacking defenseless cities is what the Amalekites do. <laughs> They're like, wait, the army marched off. Well, let's go and let's attack when there's nobody there to defend them. And, and, and this is um, an effective strategy, but one the Amalekites use, it's like, it's like punching below the belt, right? There is no honor in going and sacking and burning a city that's, that's defenseless. But the Amalekites have never had a problem with this. Back in Deuteronomy 25, the reason God was so angry at them and told Saul to put them all to the sword is because they came out and they attacked the rear guard of Israel when they were coming out of Egypt and attacked the weak and the lame in the back of the pack, right? Because you don't usually take the weakest people and put them in the front. You, you put them in the rear where they don't slow you down. And the Amalekites were like, oh, look, there's the weak spot and went and attacked it. This is what they always do. They always are attacking the weaker members of society. Now, verse 5 specifically mentions that David's wives were taken, but this has already been stated in verse 3. So why? Why are they restating something they're already told us? Now, the emphasis on David's family brings out an analogy between the Amalekite attack and other attacks on the bride and the seed of God that occur throughout Scripture. Satan is always coming after our wives and after our children. They're always coming after... Satan and his minions are always coming after the son of promise. Now, this goes back to Genesis 3, when the serpent sought to seduce the bride and Adam failed to guard her. The attack always comes um, through our wives, after our wives, after our home, after our children. It's no 
coincidence that the nuclear family is what the secularists want to attack so badly because when you attack that, right, you throw off the whole plan because God's plan is saving this world through faithful children. So if you can somehow screw that up, get in there in the mix and mix it all up, what you have is you've effectively stopped God's plan. So what, what's at work behind all of this is not just to try, right? It's, if you think of the start of the book of Job, at the start of the book of Job, who is it that's actually attacking Job? It's Satan. But what does he use? He uses all kinds of tribes. And so here you have David and his wives, who he doesn't yet know he's the son of promise. He's going to bring about right, his greater son, Jesus. He doesn't know that yet, but Satan knows it. Satan knows what's going on, and Satan has a plan. So even here, in the middle of all this tribal warfare, you've got the powers of darkness fighting against God, going after the thing that God uses to change the world, and that is godly offspring. Going after the home, right? So as, as we are, remember, I'm no longer making the argument that we ought to fight. I'm, it's how. The number one thing that we have to protect is the household. Right? We can't be like, right? David goes off and he's got all these plans outside of his home. Like, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to strike down these Philistines. I'm going to win back Saul and I'm going to do great things for the kingdom. Meanwhile, his house is being ransacked and his entire family is being taken into captivity. So, men, whatever your great plans are for the kingdom of God, don't forget your house. Right? Don't forget your wife. Don't forget your children. They are more likely the thing that, that Satan is going to come after. There is also another mention of the typological significant three days. The emphasis on the third day is significant. Jesus, of course, was raised on the third day. Paul said that it was to fulfill the scriptures. He said he was raised on the third day to fulfill the scriptures. And then have you ever stopped to think, well, which ones? Jonah? Like, what scriptures does it fulfill? It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, Jesus was buried. Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And it doesn't give us an address to go and look at. Paul's point becomes clear when we recognize that the third day was not prophesied in some isolated text, but it was a frequent motif throughout the Old Testament. It's, it, it's a theme throughout the entire book. On the third day of creation, dry land emerged from the waters. Plants sprang up from the ground, right? So life comes out of, out of water, like baptism, and life comes out of the ground, like at the resurrection, on the third day. It's right there in, in creation week. God's like, hey, you want to see what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring life out of water and life out of the ground. Abraham and Isaac arrived at Mount Moriah on the third day of their journey, and Isaac's sacrifice of death and resurrection occurred on that day. At Sinai, the Lord came down um, to the mountain on the third day to cut a covenant with Israel in Exodus 19. And in the rite for cleansing from corpse defilement, the defiled Israelite had to be sprinkled on both the third and the seventh day to be delivered from the living death of uncleanness. Now, here, there's a cluster of three-day periods. David arrived in Ziklag on the third day. The servant of the Amalekites had been without food or drink for three days. We're going to get to that in a moment. David was back in Ziklag for three days before he received the news of Saul's death. This entire story, with this repetition of the third day, is a resurrection story. David experienced a personal revival. He dies and comes back to life in the middle of this story. When he discovered what had happened at Ziklag, in his absence, he and his men wept until they had no strength. They wept until they died. But then he strengthened himself. And what did he strengthen himself with? Water? What did he strengthen himself with? Food? 
He strengthened himself in the Lord. The Lord brought him back from death. He is revived on the third day. And what a revival it is. It goes on, right? We're going to see in chapter 30, four times in verse 21 alone, David smites, David recovers, David brings back, David takes sheep, David takes cattle. When the spoil is taken, it's David's spoil. He comes out of the ground victorious. He comes out of the ground and goes to work on the Amalekites and defeats all of them. It's as if he attacks them and is a single-man army. Like Jesus It's not an accident that these chapters record a major transition in the life of Israel itself. On this same day, David's third day, Saul dies. David emerges victorious and rich with plunder. Now, if the last we saw Saul, he was at himself a Passover meal. He's sitting down at the table of demons, having a feast with the necromancer, and he rises up from there, and the firstborn of Israel then goes out and dies, just like they did in Egypt. And the exile of David ends. So this whole thing that's going on here is a death and resurrection story of not just David, but of Israel itself. Just like it was at the Exodus. The king is dead. Long live the king. That's what this story is. Israel has died. Long live new Israel. David has died. Long live David. The large-scale structure of 1 to 2 Samuel Uh, reinforces the importance of these chapters that we're in. These are the central chapters. This is the book for this book ends with the this what's going on here and the second Samuel begins with what's going on here. This is the linchpin here of the whole story and at the center of it is what? Death and resurrection. Because at the linchpin of all of our stories, the linchpin of human history, the linchpin of the church is always at the center of it is the death and resurrection of our king. Now, what kind of king is this new king? What kind of man is he? 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6 through 10. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and you shall surely rescue. He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and you shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook. Now, the Israelite soldiers grieved especially over the loss of their sons and daughters, so much so that they, were, they needed to have a scapegoat, and the scapegoat was David. Okay, we've come back, and we're totally wrecked. You know who brought us here? David. You know who's going to die? David. And this is always what the people of God do. Our envy wants a scapegoat. Who do we blame for this problem? Right? We can't get our fingers all the way around God's neck, and so we go to work on his image bearers. Well, here's the anointed of the Lord. Here's the guy that we're all out here following. Let's kill him. Again, right? <laughs> if you're a father, if you're in leadership at all, this is generally what happens, right? Things go all south. Everybody, everybody kind of loses their mind with grief, and what they want to do is they want to blame someone. They blame dad. They blame the leadership. 
right? Who, who is the source of all of our problems? His name is Joe Biden, right? Right? Isn't, right? Isn't that what we do? Don't, wouldn't we all, if there was a petition, sign up to stone that guy? But where did all this grief come from? We want to blame him because we always want to scapegoat. And we think it's right, right and just because he's not a good man. So in this story, <laughs> Biden is, is David, and you're Israel. We always want to find someone to blame, someone to hate, someone to put down because we don't like what's happening to us. But what does David do? David turns to the Lord. He doesn't let them stone him. He doesn't offer himself as a sacrifice because it's wicked and evil and unjust. But he also, right? What does he do? He turns to the, he just ignores them and goes to the word of God. When he needed specific guns, he turned to Abiathar the priest. He gets the ephod. He speaks to the Lord. And what does the Lord give him? The Lord promises, you will go out and you will succeed. So he sets his face towards Jerusalem and he goes out and leads his men on the road to victory. And this is, what, this is what it's like. This is what the gospel preaching to you is like. Go and fight because you will win. Well, wait, we might die, though. I didn't say you wouldn't die. I said you would win. What is it like to be the people of God? It's this. He sets out from his camp with a promise that he will succeed. And, and, that, and, and does that mean that they don't have to wander through the desert for a time? Right? And, and think about it. There's a giant desert. They don't have GPS systems. They don't have satellites that the CIA can analyze. They don't have facial recognition programs. They've got to wander around a desert and find a bunch of people that stole their swag and their wives and their children. It, it, God doesn't say that there will not be hardship. He says, go, fight, win. That's what he says. And that is the gospel message to all of us. Go, fight, win. Now... David, upon discovering that 200 men were exhausted, did not push them. He left them. He said, yeah, okay, I've only got, I've only got a few, but you guys are exhausted, and I'm not going to take you with you. I'm not going to force you to go. Saul has no problem making a vow that none of his men are going to eat and then tries to murder his son when he eats some honey. Right? He doesn't care that his men are exhausted. They're going to obey him. Whereas here, David, has, he doesn't have a lot of resources, and he's benevolent and generous and says, listen, you 200 weary people, that's fine. You stay here because I'm going out, and God said I would win. Losing people along the way didn't deter him from the thing that God told him to do. He didn't say, wait, how am I going to win without you guys? He said, ah, God said I'm going to win. You guys are tired. I'm not harsh, and so stay here. So David, who was left behind, comes back to find out that the people he left behind in his town are taken captive. And then, because he's a generous God and, and that he has war-weary people following him, he leaves them behind in a spirit of generosity and kindness. But this is not the only relief that David brings. Clearly, we're starting to see why God sent him back and didn't let him go through with his plan to fight on behalf of Israel. It says in verses 11 through 15, They found an Egyptian in the open country, brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink. They gave him a piece of cake of figs, two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he didn't even ask him questions. He, he just found a guy in the desert and fed him. He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. 
My master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah, against the Negeb of Caleb, and burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. David was sent back. David was left behind to go out in the desert and save one Egyptian. Like, is that the plan? Like, God's not worried about what's going on in Israel. He's not worried about where Saul is right now. He's not worried about Jonathan, his beloved son. He's worried about one lost Egyptian in the desert. David, the great David, this is what he's using David for, to save some schmo wandering around hungry in the desert who was sick anyway. What good is the guy, right? I mean, the Amalekites, they're like, this is their way. They attack the weak and the poor and the defenseless. This guy gets sick, and instead of healing him, they leave him there. And who comes along to save him? David. Can you imagine? (laughs) Right? You're out in a desert, and you think you're going to die, and the President of the United States comes flying down to 747 to rescue you. You're like, it's a bit overdoing it, don't you think, God? I mean, you could have just sent a camel. It would have gotten the job done. But no, here is this man in the desert, in the wilderness, a Gentile. And David gives him a feast in the midst of his enemies without asking any questions. And then makes him his friend. And then gives him a mission. And takes him into this great story of salvation that David is now engaged in where he's going out and rescuing his people. And, and this Gentile is you. This Gentile is me. Right? This is why the greater David, this is pointing to the greater David, who even though he's got all these things on his mind, even though he's got Rome to deal with, and he's got the gospel to deal with, and hey, disciples, can you get to act, your act together? A Syro, Syrophoenician woman comes and says, I'm not even worthy of eating at your table, and he says, eat. This is the kind of God you serve. There, there is no person on this planet that he's not concerned about. There, and, and whatever... Whatever you got going on in your life, you make great plans. But what if God just wants to save some poor schmode lost in the desert? And you were the means to that end. Irregardless of whatever your plans are. His plans are better. His plans are always better. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 16 to 20. And when he had taken down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because all of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines, from the land of Judah... And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men. I love how the Bible puts things. Nobody escaped except 400 guys. And you're like, wait, what? How many were there where that doesn't seem like a very big number? Just these 400. It's okay. But how did they escape? They mounted camels and fled. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. This is David's swag. He went out and he plundered the strong man. They were eating and drinking and dancing. The word dancing is connected to the Hebrew word for a festival, likely indicating that they were out there thinking they got away with it, worshiping their God, celebrating before him for this great military victory over women and children that they've gotten. And David's victory over them is also Yahweh's victory over their gods. So here they are, worshiping their gods, thanking him for what he's done. And along comes David and his men and kills most of them. 
showing that there is no God protecting them. So again, just like Egypt, that was not just a war against the Egyptian people, it was a war against their gods. Because our wars, when we go out and fight them on behalf of the Christian God, is, a, is him fighting other gods. This is why our, the thing that we're really against is principalities and powers of the air. The Hebrew word translated as dawn in Job 7.4 and in Psalm 119, it, it, the word, it's translated different ways in different places, but it's the dawn. He starts at dawn. Why? Because they're, <laughs> they're all hung over like Nabal was. Right? Just like Nabal died the night after his big party, here we are. David knows, like, why would I attack them now? I'll wait until the morning when they're a little fuzzy-eyed, and then I'll go get them. And he does, and it works. And, and they hardly know what's going on. Now, the operations lasted all day and into the afternoon. David completely overwhelms them, except for 400 who escape on camels. He recovers everything, all human beings, all the captives. He frees everyone. He gets all the spoil. The honor belongs to him alone, just as earlier he had been obliged to take the blame. Okay, and I give his people at least credit for this. We were going to just blame you and put it all on you that, when everything was bad. Right? And, and this is, again, how leadership works. Now everything's gone well, and we're going to then give you all the credit, too. And, I mean, David, he's a humble guy. He's like, well, I don't deserve all the credit. But it, it does certainly seem like he was the motivating force behind the victory. David. David smote. David recovered. David rescued. David brought back. David captured. This is David's war swag. Now, what is he going to do with it? He's gone out, and he's had this victory, and they give him all the honor, all the credit. Now, what is he going to do with it? This is a longer section, 21 to 26. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow, who had been left at the brook Besor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the place, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with him said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart from us. And David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has persevered, preserved us, I'm sorry, and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays in the, by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day now. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Now David applied the general rule of Torah found in Numbers 31. If, if, a, whole, if a war band goes out and some of the guys, are, the, are, are uh, um, even though they're sergeants and they're in charge of the, the chuck wagon, and they have to stay behind to protect the chuck wagon supplies. Those guys get just as much swag, or they get a large portion of the swag for themselves, even though they weren't actually out there fighting. This is what God says. God, God says this in his word. But what I, I just want to say, David, who was left behind, discovers the family he left behind was taken captive. And then he goes in the desert, and he finds a man who was left behind. And now what he's here to do, this whole story is so that he can administer justice to another group of people that were left behind. Do you see a theme forming? David's sense of justice was formed by the mercy and generosity of his Lord. He says, the Lord gave this to us. He does not take credit for it, even though others want to give him credit for it. He says, no, the Lord has given this to us. And because he is generous with us, we will be generous with everyone else like we're supposed to be. And he sets a standard. Now, I thought Samuel said in chapter 8 that kings will take. 
He said, don't trust kings because they'll take from you. They'll take your daughters. They'll take your sons. They'll take your swag. They'll take your farms. They'll take your food. They'll take everything. And here David is distributing, distributing in largesse. He's like, here, have. You guys who are watching the chuck wagon, you guys get some too. Oh, and though all of those people who were helping me all these years have been wandering around the desert, they get some too. So he, bring, he leads a host of captives that he saved, and he's now distributing the goods to everybody who is with him, who is of Israel. Now, the word worthless here is Belial. This is a word we've heard from the very beginning of this book. Okay, Eli's sons, the men who opposed Saul at his coronation, all of those men were worthless sons, sons of Belial. Now, here we have the sons of Belial mixed with this word baggage, which reminds us of 1 Samuel 10. When Saul became king, it brings out this parallel revelation. When Saul became king as when David becomes king. In both cases, the new king faced not only external enemies, but divisions from within. Evil men within Israel. Remember what Saul did, though? He was hiding amongst the baggage. And, and one of the only good things he ever did was not put the sons of Belial to death. And here David also doesn't put the sons of Belial to death. He stands up to them and says, I'm going to do the just and right thing and distribute this stuff to my people. But what I want you to notice is that when both of these men become king, there are enemies outside the Philistines that they're fighting, but there's also worthless sons in Israel that they're fighting. And this, of course, points to John chapter 1, verse 10 to 13. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus came into the world, and the world didn't know him, and his own people rejected him. And yet, what did he do? He led a host of captives, gave gifts to men. And, that, and David does have, in fact, truly he does, have a heart after God. He's a benevolent Lord like his Lord. Salvation accompanies the showering of gifts. Psalm 68, 18 through 19. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up, God is our salvation. That is what Paul is quoting when he famously says that God led, uh, Jesus led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. It's what God has always done. The God that we serve is no different than he was in the day of David. He is no different than he was in the day of Jesus. He's no different than, he, than now. What does he do? He leads a host of captives. Right? <laughs> You, how many great phenomenal plans do you have, right? Are you ready? Have you been just, right? Mike talks about let's be deceptive, and now we're going to be deceptive, and we got the enemy right where we want them, and we're going to do all these great things, and then actually you get sent home, and you get left behind. Anybody feel left behind? I feel left behind, right? I live in Seattle. <laughs> there are great things going on for the kingdom somewhere, but certainly not out here, right? Did anything good ever come from Seattle? And we'll call it left behind because we had greater things planned. But your God is as concerned about the wife and children as he is about the the Gentile wandering around in the desert. There is a great host to be defeated. 
He's not silent about that. He will give you the strength to do it. And, and after you've done it, you will find out that he is all about leading a, a host of captives and giving gifts to men. And his plan of leaving you behind perhaps has nothing to do with you. It perhaps has to do with your family, perhaps the Gentile in the desert, perhaps those people who were left behind from battle because they were wearied, right? What did Jesus say? I've, I, he's come. Come to me if you are weary, and I will give you rest. Maybe God is, is concerned about the wearied person who needs justice as he is about you and your big plans. We despise the day of small beginnings. We despise being left behind. We despise to have our plans thwarted. We understand what's going on. We see the big picture. We're going to do great things for the kingdom. And, and meanwhile, there's a whole other plan that someone has for us that's way better, that's way more gracious and generous and good. Now, David refused to interpret obstacles as signs of God's opposition to him. Never at any point does he say, God has departed from me. God is not listening to me. God is doing things to me that I don't deserve. You never, through this whole thing, hear him say anything, right? What does he say? Go back. He goes back. He doesn't say a word. Uh, Your people are taken. Everybody wants to stone him. The only thing it says about his reaction to that is that he weeps. He still doesn't say anything. All along, he never takes the opposition that providence is providing him as a sign that God is not with him. And when, whenever he is wearied of the task, he goes to God, and what does he get from God? A promise. Go. Fight. Win. Why? Because I'm with you. I'm sending you. I have a purpose for you. I have a plan for you. We have enemies that need destroying, and you need to go and destroy them. There are people in captivity. Go save them. There are people wandering alone in the desert who are hungry. Feed them. There are people who are weary. Give them justice. Now, that's the gospel, isn't it? Jesus descended. He was left behind to save all the people who were also left behind. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 10 to 18. This is the gospel for those who feel left behind. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered, 
when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He was left behind. Why? Because you were left behind. Because I was left behind. Because the Gentile was left behind. Because the, the children of Abraham were left behind. And why did he do it? Why did he suffer? So that he would be perfected. So that he would come into the middle of the story and say, you know what this story is about? It's about I win. That's what it's about. It's about I love. And, lo- and my love is stronger than your hate. My righteousness is stronger than your sin. And I'm not just doing this by myself. It's not David, 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 Jesus, 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 Jesus. It's you are going with me. You are the host of captives coming with me. Here, presence. Do you want the spirit? Do you want the word of God? Do you want a family? Do you want children? Do you want purpose in life? And we say, wait a minute. I had these plans, though. I had all these plans. And I said, over my dead body will I not do these plans? And he says, listen, if you want to know what it's like, right? if you want to know what it's like to be my son, if you want to know what it's like to be my daughter, you want to know what it's like to be in my family, you're going to be left behind. Because I have a greater purpose for you than, you, than the purposes you think you have for me. And, and until we accept that, until we, right? until we turn with David, after we go, go home and weep your eyes out, do it. If, are you suffering? Is there real suffering in your life? Is there real suffering in the lives of the people around you? Weep until you've got nothing left. And then don't be strengthened by water. Don't be strengthened by ham sandwiches. Don't be strengthened by going on Netflix and distracting yourself to the point of death. Once you've weeped your eyes out and weeped for all those other people who are weeping their eyes out, turn to the Lord and be strengthened to him. Right? And, 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 and call on him. And what is he going to say? He's going to say go. He's going to say fight. He's going to say win. And then when, when you go and you do that, what are you gonna, you're going to be taken up into this story like this Egyptian was. And you're going to be now this person who's partating, participating in a great victory and the death and resurrection of Israel itself and the death and resurrection of man himself and the death and resurrection of humanity because God has a better plan than our plans. Now, if you want to be a part of that story, right? welcome. Welcome. If you are wearied, here is, here is food for you to eat on the way. And what does this table tell us? What is the meal before, right? You're the, you're the hungry G- Egyptian left behind. And here is food to restore you. And what does it say? It says, I came, I fought, and I won. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your gospel and your goodness. We thank you for the richness of scripture, Lord, that tells the same story again and again and again for our world-weary ears and hearts and minds. I pray, Lord God, that as we go from here, that we would pursue Christ that we would cry out to him and seek him, and that we would trust, Lord, that even though it may at times feel that we are left behind and though we are actually left behind, your purposes are greater than ours and that you have, in fact, won, and through us you are transforming this world. Amen.